Welcome to Seeking Scripture Deep Diving Bible Study. I'm Christy Jordan, and I want to help you develop a firsthand relationship with the whole Word of God. For links and graphics mentioned in my podcast, please visit the corresponding post on SeekingScripture.com. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. Good morning, siblings. Today's readings are Leviticus 24 through 25. Rabbit Trails Y'all, we've almost made it through Leviticus. I hope you've enjoyed all the treasures this book holds. It has a lot of surprises for the first-time readers, too, and I want to commend you for taking those in such stride. The daily discussions have been wonderful, and it is wonderful and encouraging to see such eagerness to search the Scripture. Keep our eyes open for allowing God to speak and then sharing our insight. Now, onward. <laughs> Leviticus 24.2 Remember, this lamp is what we know today as a menorah. Yahweh designed it, and we're given that design in Exodus 25. Pretty cool. Now, interesting fact is that menorahs have seven branches. The ones you see around December each year with nine branches are generally called menorahs, but they're actually Hanukkahs, which is a type of menorah, but not Yahweh's original design. Note, this does not make them bad. I'm not saying that. It's a lovely tradition rooted in the scripture that honors Yahweh and has never been used for any other purpose, such as to honor idols. Not all traditions of men are bad. At some point, we'll discuss the verses in which Yahweh shows us when a tradition is considered bad and how to tell the difference. More interesting facts. Hanukkah is often referred to as the Feast of Dedication because it commemorates the temple being taken back and rededicated to the Father. Long story, but a good one if you want to dive into it. We see Messiah arriving at the temple for the Feast of Dedication, now known as Hanukkah, in John 10. In Leviticus 24.19, we see the emergence of the eye-for-an-eye instruction. Now, note that Yahweh was still in the process of establishing the nation of Israel with his instructions and teachings, and this was given to Moses as a way of passing judgment and ensuring that justice there was justice among the people. These instructions were not to be carried out by anyone who felt like it. They were to the authorities among the people who would have been seeking Yahweh daily and living according to his word. Of course, as the people go astray, everyone will see themselves as their own authority, much as it is in our time. Many of you may be thinking that Messiah abolished this in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, You have heard that it is said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, it is very important for us to fully understand that Messiah would never contradict Yahweh. Whenever we see what we believe is him contradicting a commandment, we have to step back, reorient our understanding, and correct ourselves. It's thinking like this that has stood as a persistent stumbling block between our Jewish brethren being able to see him as a son of Yahweh, because they fully understand through exhaustive knowledge of Scripture that the Messiah would never contradict Yahweh or undermine his commandments. So whenever we proclaim that he did, generally through a lack of scriptural knowledge, which our reading here firsthand is correcting, it causes his character to understandably fail the test in their eyes of whether or not he's the Messiah. Of course, he does not fail that test. But with a lack of understanding of these very neglected books, our portrayal of him often does. We'll learn more about this later. 
I know this may seem confusing now, but it will all come into focus, I promise. Back to my point. In studying these passages, it's easy to see that this commandment was for the judges and officials to use in passing judgment. But in Messiah's time, people had taken this and twisted it to give themselves free reign to abuse others and seek retaliation personally whenever they felt wronged. Messiah was giving personal instructions to individuals, clarifying that they were not to act as if judges in courts. Can you imagine a society in which everyone acts on their own personal offense the moment they feel they've been offended, whether it's true or not, and seeks retaliation of their own choosing? We're getting perilously close to that in our culture. Exodus 21 talks about similar punishments and such, and in Exodus 21-22, we clearly see that these matters are being judged by or in a court of judges. The man who was stoned. What do y'all think about that? Wow. Okay, so they got in a fight, this half-Egyptian and full-blooded Israelite, and the half-Egyptian cursed Yahweh in the heat of a fight. Oh, no, you did not just do that. Now, I don't imagine this to be a lighthearted curse myself. I imagine it was pretty severe, such as calling out the Israelite God as useless, weak, etc. This is just my own conjecture, and truthfully, perhaps I'm adding this to rationalize God's judgment against the man. So, a point to remember, both for myself and for anyone reading this, is that Yahweh does not need, require, nor desire our justification for His actions. He is God. P.S. Looks like he's serious about the whole name in vain thing, huh? Yahweh does not waste his breath. If he says it, he means it. And not to justify in any way our use of the term God as slang, but a gentle reminder that he has a personal name, even though it's been removed almost 7,000 times from most of our Bibles and replaced with generic terms of Lord or God. Reminder, read the front matter in your specific Bible translation to learn more about this. Now, you can call me Miss, Mrs., Author, all those titles apply. But it doesn't change the fact that my name is Christy, and it is a special blessing to me when someone takes the time to know it. Leviticus 25, we see the Sabbath principle applied to the land. There seems to be a contradiction between Leviticus 25.5 and Leviticus 25.6. But we must realize that there must be a key difference between reap and harvest as evidenced by the context. You're not allowed to harvest, which is what is normally done. Now, harvesting is like the full field, selling some, storing some, etc. However, in being told that reaping is allowed in the next sentence, we're told that it's okay to reap what is needed to feed the household. So it appears that this food that naturally grows on its own, as would occur in fields that were generally planted year after year, is okay to partake of, but we're still not to commercially, as we would think of it today, plant, tend, and harvest the field. There are several instances in which the pattern of six, of work, and then one of rest is applied throughout Scripture. Isn't it amazing to see that in that Sabbath, the land still provided food for the people and their animals? Also note that in the year of Jubilee, this Sabbath for the land would actually last two years. Just for a loose perspective, imagine having to store up and knowing that there would be a period of two years in which you could not go to the grocery store and had to entirely depend on the stores in your house. When we trust in Him by obeying Him, He provides in ways we never imagined are possible. When we walk in obedience, we can rest, and our untended work will still 
yield fruits. It's something only he can do. Leviticus 25.9, the sound of the trumpet. Y'all know that's a shofar, right? (laughs) Have you heard it yet? The Bible says we will hear the sound when Messiah returns. Now, if you check out this interlinear on Bible Hub with this verse, you'll be able to see that it is a shofar. It is a goosebump-inducing sound, so much so that I think our souls actually recognize it. And that's why it elicits such an emotional reaction in some people. I have some friends who, the first time they heard one, they were moved immediately to tears. Considering that it will be what it will be a precursor to someday, Messiah's return, I fully understand why. We have two, three shofars in our house now, and I have improved greatly in my shofar skills since I first got one, but I still got a ways to go. Below, I have a video of my friend Steve blowing his shofar. I hope you'll check out the post and watch that. Another thing we'll see in Leviticus 25.18 is that when we set our minds to obey Yahweh, He makes special provision to provide for us. He honors that faithfulness and obedience in ways that those outside of obedience just don't experience. Much of this chapter focuses on Yahweh's welfare system. It is one that doesn't contain the bitterness and other fleshly emotions, which we sometimes attach to our good deeds today. When Yahweh puts an opportunity in front of us, we're to be prepared to do His will, not question whether the need is sincere, whether a receiver will do what is responsible in our eyes. Our job is to obey Yahweh and give when He leads us to. What the receiver does with our gift is between them and Yahweh. We should not ever look down on someone we give to. Rather, consider them a blessing to us because they allowed us to pass on some of the many blessings and grace that the Father has bestowed upon us. In doing so, they have given us a gift in allowing us another opportunity to obey our Father. All right, folks, time for me to get my shalom on for the day. Y'all have a blessed one. And remember, Yahweh does not waste his breath. If he says it, he means it. Test everything. Hold tight to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 We are saved by grace alone. Obedience is not the root of our salvation, but it is the fruit. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. I love y'all. Bye-bye.